All right, well, uh, how many of you, just honesty time, feel some pressure, some even mild pressure to make some changes at the beginning of the new year? Okay, most of us, right? I, I don't know where this comes from. I think it's just the passing of time uh, and maybe some marketing uh, by, by health clubs. But um, <laughs> we feel some pressure to establish a new behavior in our lives, right? We, uh, and, and yet they rarely last. I mean, honesty time, how many of us are thinking about making changes that one year ago we were actually thinking about making in our life, but it did not last. Um, and and uh, part of that, I think, is because we live under such pressure, pressure to, uh, the, to make the changes now of like working out more, spending more time with friends, maybe spending less time with certain friends, uh, pressure to work harder, right? Pressure to invest more time in your marriage or your children, pressure to be a better person. Uh, the Christian versions are the pressure to read your Bible more, to pray, and to go to community group and gatherings more, right? That's the Christian version of the New Year's resolution. Um, but we all felt this pressure a year ago and did not change. And I think one of the reasons that we did is because we as a people live in a culture where we feel completely overloaded already. And the idea of adding something, increasing something in our lives, throwing in another thing in our lives, it just feels like impossible, right? Um, I, was re- I was listening to a podcast recently, the reference a book called... Um, Margin, Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Reserves to Overloaded Lives by Dr. Richard Swenson. He's not a Christian, just a researcher. And he speaks out about 20 different, over 20 different kinds of overload that you and I experience today in modern Western life. Uh, There's activity overload, just too much going on. There's change overload, things change and things change quickly. Uh, There's choice overload, too many options. We go into so many places and it's like the Cheesecake Factory menu. There's a billion options and none of them are really good. but not really bad either. Uh, (laughs) Commitment overload, we feel committed to too much, and so we end up the day of texting that, uh, hey, sorry, not feeling good today. Um, uh, Commitment overload, competition overload, debt overload, millennials are the most in-debt generation in the history of our country. Uh, Decision overload, we have to decide too many things in day-to-day life. Education overload, expectation overload, many of you are living under your parents' expectations. Uh, There's fatigue overload, hurry overload, information overload. To give you a little perspective on information overload and how it is actually affecting you as a human being, the average New York Times edition, one edition, one day's edition, has more information than the average person in the 17th century would see in their entire lifetime. One edition, and that's all at our fingertips. Media overload, noise overload. There's actually uh, some studies coming out now about how uh, human beings are responding to being in constant noise all the time, environments that are uh, noisy. People overload, we, we know that in the city, right? Um, no solitude. <laughs> Pollution overload, possession overload, problem overload, technology overload. There's so many time-saving advi- devices and yet so little time to learn them all, right? <laughs> Which seems ironic at best. Uh, traffic overload, again, I think that's referencing Boston. Uh, w- waste overload, work overload, and others. Um, Now some of you can add sermon overload to that list because I just read about all the things you feel overloaded by in a sermon. Um, But seriously, most of us in this room feel overloaded and and the typical New Year's Day message in a church is start doing this, add this to your life. Do you need to serve in this ministry? You need to get out here and do this. And and there are good things that that we should be doing, but, but it's interesting that the scripture doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on that. In fact, it focuses on, um, 
two things that really help us change. <coughs> Excuse me. Change in life. One of them is, is our operating system, sort of the underlying operating system that we are working and doing life out of. And then the other, other thing the scripture seems to emphasize is practices. Uh, we're going to focus on the operating system today. And then uh, in our community groups, at least in Brookline, uh, when they start back up, we're going to actually focus on practices this semester. Uh, some of the practices that help us to shape out and frame out a healthy life that actually changes in healthy ways. Um, but today we're looking at the operating system, and grace is that operating system in our life. Grace is God's love in practical form in our lives. How does God love you? How does God love me? It is by grace. It is through his son, Jesus Christ, and in practical grace that actually impacts the way you and I live each day. Um, what he wants to do today, and I want to just just let you feel free to like slide that uh, to-do list off your burner, that, that like all the things that you think God might want you to do. Uh, I'm not saying don't do any of those things. I'm saying if you do those things without dealing with the underlying operating system, in a month you'll fail and you'll feel guilty. In a year from now, you'll be thinking about, oh, it's New Year. I should probably start doing these things again, right? Um, and so what I want us to talk about is the operating system that then out of that, we can begin to follow Christ more fully and experience his goodness in our lives. And that operating system, that framework is grace. And that grace, what we're going to see in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 today, is that that grace is meant to be training us on a daily basis. It's meant to be training us. Look at uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14. When I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to see today, I remember studying this text years ago, and just and, and, and um, keeps, I keep coming back to this text, how this text has a past, a present, and a future orientation. There's a past orientation, a present orientation, and a future orientation. The past, we, we see that grace trains us to get past our past. Uh, it helps us to live in the present and to have hope in the future. So let's look at this together. First, grace trains us to get past our past. And you can see the past division uh, dimension here. In verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's past tense, right? And then later on in the second part of verse 13, he says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So these are past acts that Christ has done that you and I are supposed to look back to that what he has done is he has already purified us. We just sang a song testimony and, and declaring that Jesus Christ, uh, the righteous by him, we are justified. That's done. That is finished. If I could say something that is incredibly simplistic, but oh, so easily forgotten as a Christian is everything that you need forever 
to have a relationship with God and to know him and to be adopted into his family and given his kingdom and, and to, to be with him in eternity has already been accomplished by Jesus. It is done. It is finished. Your freedom has been declared. You have been liberated. Uh, redemption, justification, all of those things have happened. And it, it is in our past, um, in, in past historically and in your and my past, we can look back and see that it's done. It's finished. Tim Keller said, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. The, more I, the longer I'm a Christian and the more I study scripture, the more I realize how, how important this is. <clears throat> how important it is that I remember that I sink my roots in, that I plant my feet on what Christ has done on the cross and that it is out of that that I can look back at what I have done and see all of the failures, all of the shame and guilt, all the things that have been done to me and sins that have been committed against me and see that it has been put on the cross already, that I am free. I no longer have to live in bondage to my past. How many of you, how many of us are walking around marked and defined by events of our past? They shape our decisions. They shape the way we think about ourselves. They shape the way we think about our future. They shape the way that we think about everything. What if this year, what God wanted to do today was help you put your past in the past? To actually free you, liberate you from your past, that you don't have to feel shame and guilt for those things. You no longer have to prove yourself because at some point you were told you were worthless. You no longer have to achieve or succeed or earn other people's uh, love and approval because you have been given it by Christ. What is it in your past that's still shaping you today? If we don't bring our past hurts, struggles, patterns, sins, and shame under the grace of Jesus, you simply cannot live for him today. It is like tying both legs and both arms behind your back and trying to run. You cannot do it. Because Christ did not come so you could walk, you could be uh, handicapped in running a race. He has come to set you free, liberate you, so that you can fully run that race as a renewed new creature made in the image of God. If grace is not invading your past, your present effort is to mitigate your past in some way. I've seen this so many times as a pastor over the years. The the, um, Christian biblical counselors call them functional saviors. People look to their career. They were told they were worthless. They were told by their parents, you are only what you can achieve in this world. You are only what you can earn in this world. And so then their career, their money, their position, all becomes their identity. And if that, that is their functional savior saying, I am worthless now. If I get that, I will be worth something. And you can redefine that in any number of ways in terms of position or a family or whatever. There can be good, many good things. But you are living in light of getting something that Christ has already given you. A new identity that redeems you and frees you from your past. Unfortunately, you and I live in a culture that is driven by future orientation. And I'm not talking about potential or trying to achieve. That's not, that's not a bad thing. There is a godly version of that. Praise God. <clears throat> but our culture is driven in a way that somehow we're taught if we do a thing, meet a person, achieve a role, 
get something, have an experience of some kind, then, then you will be whole. Then you will be well. Then you will experience the fullness of life. And Jesus Christ is saying, it's already done. I've done it. Put your past and all the things that are holding you in bondage, that are making you a a slave to pursuing your identity in something else, be set free. For some of you, that's the single greatest thing that could happen to you before you leave this room. Is to let the grace of God invade that space in your heart where hurt, pain, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, whatever it might be, is holding you in bondage. And it is because of your past. So grace trains us to lay these things down, to put our past in our past, but it also trains us to live in the present. Paul says, the gospel appeared and it did a work that endures today, frees us from our past. But the question is now what? Well, Paul doesn't leave that open. Verse 12 says the grace of God is training us. This is the Greek word used of training children. It involves both positive, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is the direction, good job, keep going that way. And the negative, stop doing that, don't do that. That's bad for you, that will hurt you, that will hurt other people. And, and, And we are constantly being trained this way. Um, every day, whether you want it or not, whether you feel like it or not, if you are a Christian, you're being trained. I just think we don't take it seriously. We don't take the fact that part of our living in the grace of God is that grace is training us every single day. <clears throat> Many of you know I, uh, I served as chaplain to the Red Sox for 11 seasons, and during that time, I got exposed to top athletes, right? I mean, I got to like a front row seat up, up close and personal. And it was really astounding to me to, to realize the depths of go, what goes into their training. They are the, the, everything from the types of foods they eat to uh, their sleep schedules to uh, what kind of proteins they're using uh, to um, studying film of, a, of an opposing pitcher for the next day uh, to meeting with analytics coaches to ha- uh, that will help them break down how their swing is not, not perfect right now or how their pitching is, needs to change by two degrees or four degrees or two inches or... Um, and then they then every single game they're studying the opposing pitcher. They're literally watching video of the opposing pitcher so they can prepare to hit uh, when he throws the ball at them. Um, so much goes into the seven months out of the year. They are immersed in this. I mean, like I had no idea how much of their life is controlled by this. They are in training all the time from the beginning of spring training till the end of the season. And I wonder if you and I take our Christian life that seriously. Do you see yourself in training? Or is your, you got your life and then your Christian life's kind of over here on the side and you like throw it in when you, when you can. Or it's, it's probably good for me to pray. I'm having a hard day at work. I should pray. Rather than understanding that hard day at work is part of your training. If you were to evaluate your 2022 through the lens of training in grace and all the aspects, what would your grade be? And some of you never earned anything below an A in your entire life. But I'm guessing you probably got at least a B or a C or maybe worse. You see, we, we fall into this lens of everyday life and work and relationships and all these things. And we, we pull our eyes down 
And we just think these are ends unto themselves rather than understanding every person you have a relationship with. Everything you do at your job, every moment of your day is training. You are in training. And this training teaches us to say no in one direction and yes in another. It teaches us to turn away from one type of living and turn toward another type. And so I'm just going to unpack these for us because Paul lays them out so beautifully for us here. Grace is training us to say no to our old direction. Paul says to renounce, grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Listen, every single day you are faced with ungodliness and worldly passions. They are around you, and then sometimes they are in you. And you face these every day. This is why you have to be in training, because you cannot not deal with them. They are there for you, and you will face them. And he says we must deny, renounce, refuse these things. Ungodliness uh, is the disregard or defiance of God as Lord of all. This is the root of the original sin. If, if, if you were to point to your surface sin right now, if you were to tell me, hey, I struggle with, um, with lust, I struggle with anger, I struggle with selfishness, I struggle with, with greed, uh, whatever it might be, unforgiveness, those are surface sins that are rooted in a heart of pride that feels like you have a right in those moments that you act on that sin to act on those sins. It is pride that is at the center of it. It is pride that got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. And pride is subtle and relentless. That's why you have to face training every day because every day pride will be there for you. And you cannot control it. If you think you have pride in control, you're like a, like a person who <clears throat> picked up a rattlesnake off the side of the road and threw it in the trunk of their car and thought because it was in the trunk of their car, they didn't need to think about it anymore. What happens when they go to load groceries? They forgot. And I mean, let's be honest. Does it really surprise us when we sin? I mean, I'm not. Like afterwards, I'm like, where did that come from? And God's like, really? You kind of know where that came from. You knew why you blew up in that moment, right? And it's, it's realizing that sin, that pride was there. Therefore, I have to be in training against that ungodliness. Pride is rooted in the desire, listen, to live outside of our God-given limits. Adam and Eve didn't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they thought it'd be a cool new experience, but because they wanted to transcend the boundaries that God had created for them in his goodness. They were given Eden. They were given a role above the creation and below the creator. And yet in this moment, they wanted to usurp the creator. That sin, seeking to live outside of of your boundaries. Only God is without limits. And therefore, our pride at its very core is a desire to be God. Pete Scazzaro, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, noted that exhaustion, depression, anxiety, burnout, and superficial uh, spirituality are often indicators that we are living outside or trying to live outside of our God-given limits. This is ungodliness at its ugliness, ugliest. It's a refusal to be finite by a finite creature. I do what I want when I want how I want. 
All the while, our emotional, physical, and relational unhealth is proof that we are not God. It is a sin to seek beyond what God has given you in his goodness for you to live in. And yet, at its very core, that's what you want to do in sin. That's what this world teaches us to do in sin. And that's what the enemy wants to get us to do in sin, is to live beyond our God-given limits. For many of us in this room, embracing our God-given limits is how God's grace is most desiring to train us this year. Learning to say no. Learning to step back and go, I don't need that promotion. I've been killing myself for it, but I really don't need it. Why am I trying to do that thing? I'm trying to stretch. I'm, 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 I'm sacrificing time in my community group. I'm sacrificing people around me. I'm sacrificing serving God. I'm sacrificing living on mission. I'm sacrificing serving others so that I can get this thing. And God is saying, stop trying to live beyond your limits there. You know what? Not everyone in this room is the smartest person in the room that they go into. And that's okay. You guys know that that's like one of the hardest adjustments uh, for, for uh, freshmen at some of the top tier schools like Harvard and MIT, right? Those that discover they're in the bottom 25%. They've never been anything but the top 1% their entire lives. And now they find out they're in the bottom 25%. I actually found out this the other day. MIT doesn't even give grades to freshmen anymore. It's elementary school. They give them check marks, basically. Seriously. And it's because they need to be able to adjust being in a space where they're not the smartest person in the room. Living within their limits. Some of you emotionally, socially, uh, intellectually have limits, and it's okay to accept them. In fact, God would say, that's a good thing. That's not, that's not being down on yourself. You cannot be everything. I know I was the first generation that my parents told me I could be whatever I wanted to be in life, right? Do not tell your children that. Better to tell them God made you unique and you can be exactly what God wants you to be. And I'm gonna help you discover that. How much better is that? When they figure out, well, I wanna be a football player, but you know, the guy's five foot six and a hundred pounds soaking wet, right? He's, he's not going to play football professionally, you know? But that's okay. It's okay to accept those limits. And some of you have been told not to. I'm not talking about human potential. I'm not talking about working hard and doing the very best you can in your field. That's a God-glorifying thing. But when we refuse to accept our limits and we begin to live beyond margin in our lives, then we are acting ungodly. You will be whispered to this year by the enemy. You can do it. You can, and it's a lie. Grace says you are made in the image of God, redeemed by the Son of God, and given a life with limits to know and enjoy God. So that's ungodliness. We say no to that, and deeply connected with that is worldly passions. The word, the word uh, here is stressing inward desire or lust rather than the object of that desire. These are passions that are contrary to God. They are worldly instead of godly. This is my kingdom come. My will be done on earth as it is on earth, right? It is, it is you wanting to establish your uh, self-centered life. This gets beyond the general idea of sin and digs at the recesses of our hearts. How many of us are more worried about building our kingdom than the kingdom of Jesus? <clears throat> 
Let me help you evaluate that. If I were to ask you to name your top three uh, greatest hopes for 2023, what would they be? Do you long to love God more in 2023? Do you long to love other people more selflessly? Do you long to see your coworker, that family member, come to faith in Jesus? Do you long to see Jesus' kingdom invade your life and your world? Do you long to bear fruit being connected with the vine of Jesus? Or is it about career or a new hobby or a new habit of some kind? Those are not evil things. I'm simply saying those should be subservient because if they become ultimate, it is very clear that we are living for worldly passions. So we say no to these things, ungodliness and worldly passions, and we say yes in a new direction. Verse 12, <clears throat> grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The, the adverbs here stand emphatically in the Greek before each verb and sort of point to what I'm going to call inward, outward, and upward dimensions of our training. The inward training, inward part, is the self-controlled life. This is literally in the Greek meaning of sound mind, sensibly, or soberly. This is the opposite of ungodliness, where the mind runs wild into sin. Your mind should be run by a pursuit of Christ, but sin is always waiting for you. It killed you once, and it would kill you again if it could. Self-control recognizes the battlefield. Listen, the greatest battle you will face, I'm not saying there aren't some outward battles, but the greatest battles you will face for peace and joy in 2023 are in here. They're in the room right now because they are in you. Because I have seen people, and, and I could read story after story of people who have faced the most horrific circumstances that human beings can face and still found peace and joy in Christ. So it can't be about your circumstances. It has to be about where your heart is. Are you sober-minded? Uh, I want to commend a book to you, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. If you've not read it, I talked about it, read it last year and shared some of it in the messages. But he, he shows like how our enemy stacks up against us in life, deceptive ideas that Satan sows into our minds to rebel against God, to usurp his position, to press past our limits, that these play to disordered desires in our hearts, that, that we long to be significant, we long to be the center of things, and then are normalized in a sinful society that we live in. Aside from these three things, there is absolutely nothing stopping you from following Jesus fully in 2023. But that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> Just the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's all. Do you see why you got to be in training? Why can't, you can't take a day off. It's got to be, you've got to have that clear-minded, self-controlled life. Grace trains us. You see, Jesus faced temptation and practiced self-control and was clear-minded. And so now grace trains us to do the same thing. That's the inward part of it. The outward part of it is upright, the upright life. Living righteously is like having Christ-like character. This is what those around you see. And I would argue they see because you are living a self-controlled life in your heart. You are sober-minded in your heart. Therefore, your life reflects Christ to other people. Training the gospel's training, or grace is training us to live out the gospel, to love others like Jesus, to serve others like Jesus, to make others' well being above our own. 
Listen, I want to say this one more time to you. This has almost zero to do with you radically changing your schedule. Maybe you do. Maybe you need to change your schedule. But I'm not adding anything to it. I'm just telling you, you've got to face work differently this year. You've got to face school differently this year. You've got to face your relationships differently this year. With a self-controlled mind, a sober mind, understanding you're being trained and tempted and pulled in a thousand directions at once, and only Christ is king. Only Christ is your Lord. Grace is training you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to have a self-controlled heart and live an upright life in front of other people. And this is the last, um, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 1, 13 through uh, 16, show us here. Therefore, preparing your minds, this is a parallel passage, preparing your mind for actions, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The preparing your mind for action is, is a very interesting uh, image in the Greek. The old translations say, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> and because that's exactly what the image is. See, in that culture, you had a robe on, and if you were going into battle, uh, you, you, you wouldn't want a robe, you know, down here around your ankles. Like, you know, not, not, you can't move, you can't jump back and forth, you can't, you, can't, you can't fight, right? You're not in a position to fight. So you would take that robe, and you would pull it up and you would tuck that robe into your belt. Like you pull it up basically from behind and in the front and tuck it in your belt. So your legs were free to move. That's the picture here with your mind. Isn't that awesome? It says, gird up your mind, get your mind ready, be sober, be serious. Not saying don't have fun, but be serious about the fact the enemy is coming after you. And then out of that, live an upward or godly life, a life that is for God, glorifies God. This is our character, our motivations, our words, our actions, reflecting Christ to other people. The word could be translated reverently. It is a God-honoring life. Listen, how many of us have uh, the flavor of Christ on our lives? 2 Corinthians uh, 2, Paul talks about us being the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing aroma are you smelly are you smelling in a good way not not or like a good way like essential oils uh and not not a bad way are you do do you have that flavor of christ on you in your life christ desires for that for you you're being trained to do that now this is this is difficult and and i know you can feel like man this is so much blame it seems impossible and let me just assure you of something very simply it is impossible for you because you simply cannot do this by yourself that's the problem with new year's resolutions is we have to sit in our room by ourselves and go i'm gonna do this this year and then we try and we last a week a day or week a month whatever but what what this what jesus designed for us is to be self-controlled upright and godly in a community of people you see you cannot stand the world the flesh and the devil by yourself you have to be intricately connected in community. 
Uh, like I've used this illustration before, but I, it's such a good one that I, I, I've never seen one that's better. Uh, many of you, some of you are from uh, the West Coast, so you, you've, you've seen the redwoods, right? And Teresa and I got to go out there years ago and got to see the, the beautiful redwoods, tallest trees in the world. Uh, the tallest one uh, is 378 feet tall. Um, that is taller than a football field. That's insane. It's 378 feet tall. One of the very interesting things about redwoods is that they have extremely shallow root system, like five feet, six feet. A 378 foot tall tree has roots six feet deep. Now, the problem is that when your roots are only six feet deep and you're off by yourself, what happens to you when a storm comes? You get blown over. But what redwoods do is grow in groves together. The tallest ones are in groves and their roots will spread out up to 100 feet and they interlock with each other. And it is almost impossible to push one of those trees over by itself. You will pull other trees down with it, but you can't push that one tree over by itself. Why? Because it is secure. That's what it means to be in community. Community, not where you just go to community group and you listen to other people and you kind of hang out. Listen, we can all go places and be with people and hang out and not, not be known or know anyone. Uh, Tyler and Mike and I got to go see the Celtics pound the Miami Heat into the ground uh, about a month ago. Um, such a great game. Uh, <laughs> they won two nights later, so we're not going to talk about that game. But the game we were at was really good. <laughs> but we were in a room with 25,000 people. We knew no one. We didn't know the people sitting in front of us. You can be, you can have proximity without knowledge. You can have proximity without community. So going to a community group actually is not enough. You've got to be willing to go to a community and open up your life as other people open up their lives. Listen, let me tell you, share this with you. They need you too. Other people need to hear how you have struggled so you can help them while they're struggling. That's how we grow in godliness together. That's how grace trains us. And finally here, Grace trains us to live with hope for the future. So our past, to let go of our past, to, trains us to live in the present, saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live upright godly lives in this present age, and then looking to the future. Maybe more so than any time in my life, the future is kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, the earth is just falling apart. We're destroying it as fast as we possibly can, right? We're, uh, people are destroying each other. Like, anybody who puts their hopes in politics is a bit naive. And seeing how messed up politics is right now, anybody puts their hopes in companies or corporations or, or nonprofits, like, so much brokenness across the board. We as, a human, we as a human race are not doing great right now. Well, we have incredible advancements. We're learning a lot of great things. But we are not doing great. The world is not a hopeful place, is it? Is it? It's not. Maybe more so again than any time in my life. I'm like, look at the future of our world, at least the future of our country, and I'm like, this doesn't look too great. But that's not where Christians are to live because our hope never was supposed to be in this world. Our hope is never to be in this world. You are never supposed to hope that somehow the next election, the right person gets elected or the right people get elected or the right policies happen or the right, that that's your hope. That's your dream. That'll make everything perfect. That'll be utopia. 
That's what our culture believes because they have, have this idea. This is one of the craziest, uh, most profound things I ever heard. They want the kingdom of God where there's peace, justice, and love, but they do not want the king. And you cannot have the kingdom of God without the king. We live in the kingdom of God. We should not live in fear. We should not live in anxiety. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us into a radical hope. Right now, the God of this age is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy this world. Be careful to not put your hope in it. I'm not saying that we can't do good things, shouldn't be doing good things, shouldn't seek to serve, to help, to bring justice. Those are good things. They just simply are not the ultimate things we should be hoping in because we will be disappointed when things don't happen. I was finishing up my Bible reading this week, last week, and I always love Revelation. Uh, I used to read it listening to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Um, so good. Uh, I don't anymore, but I do listen to music while I'm reading. And I, I came across Revelation 11. I actually have read Revelation twice in the last two weeks. So um, Revelation 11:15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. That's where your hope should be. That's where you should be resting your hope for this year. The word waiting here is not just waiting like being in a waiting room. It literally carries the idea of an eager expectation or longing. So I ask you, what are you longing for in 2023? Because I could say this beyond a shadow of a doubt with a people group this size. 2023, for some of you, will be the worst year of your life. It just will be. Some of you will experience hurt like you never did. You'll lose a loved one. You'll find out you have cancer. You will, it will strike at you. And for some of you, 2023 will be the best year of your life. You'll meet that spouse, you'll get that job, you'll start your family, you'll buy a home, and so many little things. And only, only the hope of Christ is enough for both of those. Only the hope of Christ keeps you from, if 2023 is your best year, from turning that into an idol in your life. Turning that spouse, turning that relationship, turning that promotion, turning that position, that degree into an idol in your life. Because your ultimate hope's not in that, it's in Jesus. And it can also keep from crushing you as your hope in things in this world get pulled apart. Don't let the hope or fear of what might happen control your life this year. Let the knowledge of what will happen in Christ guide you, train you, help you to live a meaningful, purposeful life this year. Listen, it's not... (laughs) longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize how much God is ready for, to invite me into deeper joy, deeper experience of him, deeper service to him, and how often I'm holding back, looking to other things, looking to experiences, looking to uh, some satisfaction of some kind, 
challenge you, embrace your training this year. That may mean you need to make some changes. Good. You cannot, you cannot run a thousand miles an hour trying to get everything in life and still follow Jesus. So maybe you do need to make some changes. But make the changes because grace is training you, not because uh, it's a New Year's resolution. Let's pray together. Christ, you redeemed us from, from all sin, not just our past, but our present and our future as well. May you have set us free from ever fearing standing before you in condemnation. Fear of standing before you in utter shame and guilt that we are now fully, freely, and forever forgiven. Our past is settled. You have done the work. It is finished. And today, God, you are seeking to train every last Christian in this room. Grace, grace, day after day, moment by moment, through the hard moments, the sad moments, the boring moments, the exciting moments, the hurt moments, training us to look to you. In Christ, we thank you today that the hope of your return is not a hope, it's a promise, a promise by one who has already come, who has already given his life, who has already risen for the, from the grave. May we live with that assurance this year. May anyone in this room who has not fully embraced that, who has not experienced the gift of this eternal life, may they turn away from their sin today repent and look to you, Jesus, as you have done it all, paying for their, their sin, past, present, and future. As we take communion, God, we, we thank you for the evidence that we are forgiven, the affirmation that we are being trained by your grace, and the assurance of the hope that we need for this year. In your name we pray. Amen.